When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Elsie Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. So, I'm one of those gay guys who can't really be friends with his ex. It's a lot of drama, I know, but listen. I didn't start this podcast because I had all the answers. I started it for the questions. So yeah, if I run into my ex on the street, I can be cordial. I can be friendly or friend adjacent, but if we've reached a point in our relationship in which I'm lighting unscented candles and playing a lot of Lauryn Hill, that's just my passive aggressive way of letting him know all of this stuff is about to wrap up. Like I said, I got drama. This episode of Life Out Loud is for the grown folks. Yes, Dan Savage and Bob the Drag Queen talk about open relationships and polyamory, which is not a big deal in a lot of LGBTQ plus spaces, but for mainstream media, it's still a little bit taboo. And here's why. At the height of the struggle for marriage equality, same-sex relationships that were heteronorm held center stage. And while doing so did shed light on how we're all alike, Queer people who did not want to get married or be in a monogamous relationship were either silent or silenced, to paraphrase Oprah. My hope for this episode is to help move past the stigma and salaciousness surrounding polyamorous relationships and open relationships, and instead hear how Dan and Bob found relationships that worked for them. Maybe even answer a few of your questions along the way. The first chat is with Dan, who I admired for a very long time. Yes, Savage Love and Savage Lovecast are known for its racy material. And in the case of Lovecast, a really cool theme song. On the Savage Lovecast. But I assure you the New York Times bestselling author and co-founder of the It Gets Better Project didn't waste much air talking about toys. Yeah, we acknowledge his early days, but our conversation about the evolution of his marriage to his husband Terry, who's really fine, is a thoughtful critique on monogamy. I also love what he has to say about short-term relationships. You know, I had a boyfriend once whose ideal of a good time was eating Chinese takeout, drinking cheap wine, and binging episodes of AbFab. I just had a little bit of the Botox. No, it's not Botox, it's Paralox. (laughs) You look like a zombie. She still has emotions, you know. She just doesn't have to pay for them in wrinkles, that's all. I'm happy about that, can you tell? No. Money well spent, it. Money well spent. Not a week goes by when I don't think about a joke from that show. And as a result, not a week goes by when I don't think about my ex-boyfriend. Now, don't worry. I don't stalk him on social. I don't stalk him on Grinder. I'm definitely not trying to get back together. But I do think of him because of AppFab. That's one of the reasons why I love what Dan had to say about short-term relationships and why we should appreciate them more. We then move to Drag Race Season 8 winner Bob the Drag Queen, who shares his thoughts on love and jealousy while being in two relationships at the same time. Here's a hint. Communication is important. Who knew? But we start things off with the lovely Dan Savage and how his views on love and relationships have changed over the years. You're so well known 
for having these incredible conversations about relationships and the different sort of dynamics of relationships and what's acceptable for the people who are involved versus the way society looks at those relationships. Looking back at your, what is it, 30 years now of, of being America's sex columnist, if you will, <laughs> how do you process your place in society today, understanding what it took for marriage equality to become a thing and what it may take to protect marriage equality now that the Supreme Court looks to be one that will be hostile toward it. Nothing is ever secure in this country. We've seen it with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. We now see it with uh, Roe v. Wade being effectively already um, overturned in many, many states. and. It's really harrowing. And they were clearly going after privacy, uh, that there's no right to privacy in the Constitution. That's been read into the Constitution. And the right to privacy, which has been read into the Constitution, uh, which you would think would be covered by securing your you know, personal papers and effects, because your reproductive system is one of your own <laughs> things, your effects. Uh, there goes Griswold, which legalized the right to uh, at least married couples having access to contraception. There goes Windsor, there goes Obergefell, there goes Roe v. Wade, uh, there goes potentially Loving v. Virginia. It's really terrifying. I, I'm always sort of screaming and yelling at gay men who think that they don't have uh, a dog in the fight when it comes to voting rights, when it comes to abortion rights, some gay white men, right. or gay men, not just white gay men. I don't want to be one of those white gay men whose virtue signals by slagging all white gay men, including myself at all times. But a lot of gay guys and some lesbians think that this can't touch us or isn't about us. And it is. You know, all I feel like I can do about it right now is worry and importune the people that I can importune on my, you know, the platforms that I have, the column, the podcast, to to not just worry but act. And, you know, if you're a writer or a public thinker, people are like, well, you're just, is writing all you're doing? Well, writing is action. Writing is doing something. Talking about it is doing something. Right. And hopefully motivating others to, along with me, take concrete action, take steps to donate, to vote, to importune others. Right? Politics is a conversation with consequences. And so we have to scream and yell and talk. That's how we won the marriage equality thing, at least temporarily. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me because one of the methods that was used by grassroots leaders and you know leaders of large lgbtq organizations was to say love is love and to focus in on monogamy while trying to push for marriage equality mm. but there was this undercurrent of lgbtq people who pushed back this, this desire to want to be heteronorm if you will and said lust is lust and that should be okay too right <laughs> Uh, and I was one of them. I was um, going to say, and you were one of them. Can we afford to say lust is lust when we know that love is love is very much under attack? Love is love came late. Love is love wasn't an organizing slogan, really, of the marriage equality movement. I think till Lynn manuel Miranda popularized it at the Tonys, then it really kind of <laughs> took off. Um, you know, I was out there arguing. I actually got some prominent uh, voices in the marriage equality movement to stop saying, why can't loving, committed, monogamous gay couples get married too? Because you didn't have to be monogamous to be married if you were straight. Right. You didn't have to be religious to be married if you were straight. You didn't have to kids to be married if you were straight. Everything that the religious right told us defined marriage 
and therefore we weren't allowed to do it, didn't define marriage. If a straight couple wanted to get married and not have kids and have a civil ceremony and have an open relationship or an open marriage. Um, and so we had to stop playing into that. And it was so, you know, there's a lot of data out there that shows that gay male couples aren't that monogamous. There's also data now that shows that non-monogamous gay male couples are more stable over the long term than monogamous lesbian couples and slightly less monogamous straight couples. So non-monogamy for gay men at least seems to be a stabilizing force in their marriages and their commitments, not a destabilizing one, which is the cliche. But yeah, the reason we want marriage equality is not because marriage is about religion, family, children, and heteronormativity. The reason we want it was because we were able to turn to straight people and say, as you have now redefined and currently practiced marriage, there's no argument you can make to exclude us. Marriage ain't so heteronormative anymore for you. It's not a property transaction. It's not about kids. It's not about you know bringing estates or right. principalities together. It's whatever the two people in that marriage say that it is, and it's not for the last you know, 70, 80 years in the West, a gendered institution anymore. And so unless you wanna really revise straight people, how you practice marriage, how you define it for yourselves, you're gonna to have to let us in on our own terms. And you know, there were some people in queer land who said we were being, you know, we were having to behave or be heteronormative to be married. Right. And that was so just like, look at straight people. They don't have to behave or be heteronormative to be married. Why would we have to behave or be heteronormative to be married? So, I took a big risk when, you know, I wrote a book called The Kid About Adopting. And in that book I wrote, you know, we were monogamous because Terry insisted. And then when I wrote The Commitment, which was about marriage and marriage in my family and my family's history with marriage, but also the marriage equality movement early. And we, Terry and I were no longer monogamous. And I felt kind of cornered. Whose idea was that? <laughs> it was his idea. He told the New York Times that I'm very persuasive when they asked how we went to non-monogamy, as if I just kind of like browbeat him about it for four years. But we opened our marriage at his instigation, which is was totally fine with me. How does that conversation start? Like, is he making macaroni and cheese and say, hey, you know how we use different cheeses for this? Can we think about applying this to our marriage as well? Oh, God. You know, here's a, a funny story from the archives. You know, it, it's always awkward for me when people ask like questions about our private life because Terry used to be very private and in my head he's still very private, but anybody who follows him on Instagram now knows that he's not private at all. There was a sort of change. So anyway, like a few years into our relationship, uh, we were monogamous, we'd already become parents. A friend came to town who was looking to have a very particular kind of sexual adventure. I'm sorry, I'm being vague. And I knew the right person for him to have that particular kind of sexual adventure with. And he came back and raving about it. And then Terry looked at me and said, can I go to Mike's too? And I was like, oh my God, yes. But you know, the conversation that we had, I had been in a monogamous relationship for five years. I cheated a lot. I learned a lot in that relationship. I'm still friends with my ex from that relationship. So it wasn't toxic or anything. It was just the whole time I was with him, I was like, I am failing at monogamy. And then one day I went, no, 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 monogamy is failing me. Like I shouldn't even be attempting hmm. this. What do you mean by that? I was told growing up that good people were monogamous and monogamy was good and I wanted to be good. And particularly as a gay person, I wanted to maybe overcompensate for the badness that I had been told gay was by being a good gay. And that meant being a monogamous one. Hmm. And then I tried and monogamy isn't natural, isn't easy. The only thing we undertake that we have to execute perfectly without failure, without any error for six or seven decades to be considered any good at it, it's the only thing we do where perfection is the only standard for success. 
You know, if you're Sean White, who's the world's greatest snowboarder, you can fall down on a mountain and get up and still be Sean White, world's greatest snowboarder. If you're in a monogamous relationship for 60 years and you cheated once, you fell down once, you were not good at monogamy and you never loved your partner. The whole marriage was a lie. That's what we tell people. And that destroys not non-monogamous relationships, that destroys monogamous relationships. You do know those kind of Hallmark movies you're suggesting probably wouldn't be very popular. <laughs> <You know>? Well, <laughs> that's true. Although I'm working on right, one right now that uh, maybe <laughs> we'll put it out there. So anyway, yeah, circling back to the whole like marriage quality debate and monogamy, you don't have to be monogamous to be married. And you don't have to get married. married. Marriage rights being available doesn't make them compulsory. And a lot of the like radical queer left reacted to marriage equality like if we want it, then it was something we all had to do or there was this undertow. And you look at straight people, fewer and fewer straight people are getting married. They're getting married later. Many don't get married at all. And so if straight people are immune to heteronormativity, why would queer people suddenly have no immunity to heteronormativity if that's what marriage is and all succumb? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. And yet my instincts tell me that trying to have this intelligent, nuanced, and honest conversation that you're suggesting is not something that's going to be advantageous for those of us who are fearful that marriage equality might be dismantled. In other words, pointing to the hetero people who are behaving poorly doesn't necessarily work as a good defense against people who are trying to attack marriage equality. Mm. Do you do you agree with that? Or you think I'm being a little super sensitive? Absolutely. I'm projecting myself back into the debate for it. Um, I do feel, though, that holding straight people to the standards that they, you know, reflexively want to impose on gay people in a debate around marriage rights or relationships or anything else is a winning argument. I think it's one of the reasons why you see something like 70 percent uh, support for marriage equality in polling, whereas you used to see 20% support within the last couple of decades. You know, marriage equality and gay people really, and gay people coming out, didn't just force straight people to think about gay people, it forced straight people to think about straight people. Yeah. That's not our, that's not our purpose, is not to hold a mirror up to straight people, but it is one of the things that we are capable of doing and that we do. And I don't know if that'll like secure marriage equality forever. Right. The people coming for voting rights are the same people coming for abortion rights are the same people coming for gay rights and marriage equality are the same people attacking trans people are the same people. And yet we're, you know, all these internecine debates and, and conflicts and we just need to link arms and turn and face our common enemy. You know, as we mentioned earlier, you started your column about 30 years ago and you know, obviously the country has changed and the culture has changed. How have you changed in these 30 years? And I, and I don't just mean in terms of your approach to your column writing, which you've already discussed, but I just mean like your perspective in terms of relationships. You know, it's not just my column, it's sort of a, this uh, feedback loop between my column and my own life with my, my husband. <laughs> uh, making it work is hard. And it's not always worth it, right? And I think we should do what works for us as a couple. Do what works, you know, you don't want to keep a toxic relationship or an abusive relationship on life support forever. You got to know when to walk away. Like Kenny Rogers says, you got to know when to run. 
But if you want a long-term committed relationship, and it's not something everyone wants, which is something else people need to really think about. Is this what I want? Or is this what I've been told I'm supposed to want? And I keep trying to get it and then sabotaging it because it's not what I want. And what I'd rather have is serial monogamy or open relationships or solo polyamory, as some people call it now. And, and once you realize, you know, once you drill down and you real, you know, you pick away, you know, what you were socialized to believe you wanted and, and discover what it is that you do want. And some people, what they do want is what they were socialized or, or told they were supposed to want. Right. Right. Then figuring out in your own relationships, how to make that relationship work, how to prioritize the relationship over ideals. I can't tell you how many times I've had exactly this conversation with people. You know, Terry, are, Terry and I are kind of prominent, out, gay, non-monogamous, married couple, right? And I've had this conversation with gay people, I've had this conversation with straight people, where they will look at me and say, I couldn't do what you and Terry do, an open relationship, because I value commitment too highly. And I look at them and I'm like, 28 years we've been together. How many decades have to go by? before people think we're committed. The next thing out of their mouths, and this has happened again and again and again, is they'll say, I couldn't do what you guys do. I value commitment too highly. All three of my marriages were monogamous. <laughs> you stop and, it right now. People right, don't say and, that to you. Oh my God, yes, they did. Yes, they have. Um, Jenny McCarthy at The View said that to me when I was on The View and made Barbara Walters' head explode. And what they mean is that they're committed. And I look at them and like, you're telling me that you are committed to monogamy and the people that you're in a monogamous relationship are expendable. I'm committed to Terry. We let go of monogamy because we're committed to each other. And yet you're standing there telling me you value commitment more highly than I do. You're committed to a relationship model, an ideal. You're committed to what you were told you were supposed to want. And you're not monogamous either because monogamy used to mean, and it means when the religious right talks about it, they say one man, one woman for life. And monogamy for you means one person at a time. Right. And so, you know, you're not monogamous too. You haven't been monogamous. You've had like a string of partners. They just weren't concurrent, but you're as non-monogamous as I am. It's just, I'm not going to discard my husband for some new piece of tail. The conversation about relationships in the LGBTQ community always has this image of being more progressive than our heterosexual counterparts. Do you find the perception to match with the reality? I do, I do. To be out and gay or out in one other flavor of queer means telling the truth about yourself. But you know, I when I was a teenager told my mother that I was gay, that was really hard. It's, you know, I knew the mental images that were playing in my mother's mind the, as I said that, mm -hmm. right? Very graphic sex scenes began to unfold in her head. That's what she saw. That was a hard conversation to have. Telling my boyfriend what I wanted after telling my mother, just a simple fact that I was gay, telling my boyfriend what kind of relationship I wanted or what kind of sex I wanted, compared to just coming out to loved ones, to friends, some of whom I lost, to classmates to coworkers all my life you know you're a gay man you never really stop coming out right right that is hard it gets easier you get more sort of desensitized to negative reactions because to hell with them but it's so high stakes and so consequential early that then telling the truth about everything else to the people that you're in relationships with negotiating your relationships that's easy 
comparatively. And I think that's why so many gay people, and there's also reams of uh, research that bears this out, that gay people have an easier time negotiating with their partners uh, around intimacy, around sex, around what kind of relationship that they're gonna have, uh, an easier time processing and handling conflict because we had so much experience early in life processing an internal conflict and then externalizing that conflict when we have to process it with our family and friends. And that makes our relationships not, you know, there are terrible gay relationships out there. There are abusive lesbian relationships out there and gay relationships. That, like there are lots of terrible gay people on the planet, terrible queer people on the planet. We are people just as capable of good and evil. Yes, I've dated a few. Yeah, yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer ate a friend of mine. I Very early in life, I was like, oh yeah, this thing I was told when I was coming out that like gay men were my brothers, I quickly learned that that was not true. You know, I have two older brothers. Neither of them ever broke my heart, gave me a rope burn, or murdered Nate, or gave me an SCI. Like, right. the, 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 we don't tell 15-year-old straight girls that adult straight men are their brothers, right? We tell them to go into those interactions with their, at least their BS detectors on, if not a force field up, and to be careful. And yet, when I was 15 and coming out, I was told that this was my community, gay men were my brothers, that once I came out, I was safe, and that was not true. But when you do come out, it's not the end of all your troubles. It's the beginning of brand new ones. And life is still going to be hard and you're going to still have to, you know, be on your guard. And rather than like the bullies in middle school, you're going to have to deal with the sometimes unpleasant people and it can feel bullying in the gay bar. I don't think it's the same. People whine about it too much. You know, if people are rude to you in a gay bar. You never have to see them again. You don't have to go to that bar again. You know, in middle school, you're trapped. Um, what you have as an adult is agency and the ability to walk away. Right. And you don't have that as a child if you're like being raised by anti-gay bigots in a home. The worst bullies, you know, young kids often encounter are their own parents. And we're freed from that as adults. And yet the way like so many uh, adult gay people often to me in my email will complain about, you know, being feeling bullied by, you know, the gay beauty standards, by you know, the it boys at the bar or whatever it is. And it, I, I'm sorry, I just don't think that that is comparable. You know, I'm really glad that you talked about the beginning of new problems. Because I don't want to describe it as like a civil war, because I don't think it's that deep, at least not for me anyway. But I remember reading the novel and then seeing the movie Call Me By Your Name. Mm -hmm. And in both instances, and I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, being true to this, in both instances, I walked away going, this is a terrible story. This isn't a love story. <laughs> this is a terrible story. And if I had a son who was being seduced by someone who was an adult, I would not be encouraging my son to venture into this relationship with this adult who was manipulating him. I would instead, you know, try to advise him to find people who weren't as advanced in this conversation and would have a better chance at actually trying to discover who he is, you know, without being manipulated by a grown up. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of my friends like going, oh, you're so, you know, heteronorm or you're so old school or, but it's romantic, oh, oh. it's beautiful, blah, 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 blah. A lot of people freaked out about that movie because of the age difference, which is, you know, there's the age gap discourse on the internet now where any age gap is regarded as abusive and a, an abuse of power. But, you know, I think that 
movie portrays a time when I would, you know, roughly I was a teenager at that same time. And it, it's easy to say from the perspective of now, why couldn't he just find another kid his own age to explore with? Because the kids his own age then weren't out. Most of us who were gay and out or ready to explore as teenagers then, we had no choice but my boyfriend when I was 17 was 28. And the choice for me at that moment was no boyfriends or an inappropriate boyfriend. And if you give teenagers that choice, they're always gonna choose the inappropriate one. You know, my straight peers were all hooking up and having girlfriends and boyfriends, and none of my gay peers were out yet. And I was out, which made me kryptonite. I was nuclear waste, because if you got near me, that meant you might be gay too. Right. And so the gay guys avoided me the most, the closeted gay boys who might've been appropriate. Partner. So if we want to live in a world where 18-year-olds don't date 28-year-olds or 17-year-olds or whatever it was in the movie, 16-year-olds, then you need to create a world where 16-year-olds can be out. And we've gone a long way toward creating that world. But the era that movie portrays was a different time. Were you uncomfortable at all as a father? Because that's, that's where my, my hesitation and concern came from, is that I was you know the father of a young man who was around that age. We are all of us a mass of contradictions, right? So yeah, I agree with you as a parent, like I would not want under my own roof, you know, a graduate student that I brought in who was working with me professionally to be sleeping with us, <laughs> right? Right. As a 16 year old, you know, someone who remembers very intensely what it was like to be, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, gay closeted, I can understand why a relationship like that would happen. I could understand how a relationship like that could be a positive thing in that kid's life because I had relationships like that at 15, 16, 17 that were positive for me. Individual results may vary. Some people look back on relationships they felt good about at the moment and see them differently as adults. They've, you know, they can identify how they were exploited or manipulated in a way that they weren't aware of when they were 15, 16, being successfully exploited and manipulated. But that's not true of everyone who has that kind of relationship, and it wasn't true of me. My first boyfriend, serious boyfriend for a summer, when I was a teenager who was 28, saved my life. He gave me books to read. He made me read books as you know, if I wanted to keep seeing him, including a, a really important book by a psychologist, I think, in the, written in the late 60s called Society and the Healthy Homosexual, that undid the damage that reading everything you ever wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask did to me because it showed me that a lot of the pathologies I saw in other gay men or felt in myself were pounded into us. And that, you know, so much of the research and the data that was out there about like how unhappy and miserable and um, broken gay people are was because they weren't doing a representative sample of gay people. They were just like taking gay people who were in prison and insane asylums or mental hospitals and then extrapolating from that data that we are all bad. He made me read that book. He's like, if you want to keep dating me, you have to read this book. Wow. He saved my life. That book saved my life. That's a good guy. Yeah, he was a great guy. Why'd you break his heart? <laughs> I went away. To, you know, I went away to college. It was clearly not a relationship that would last forever. And that's one of the things I write about all the time in Savage Love. You know, we talk about LTRs, long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, we look at any relationship and if it doesn't have LTR potential, we think it's a waste of time or no good can come from it. We need to talk about STRs and successful STRs, short-term relationships, because most of our relationships are STRs. That is so true. We date, we're together for a little bit, it ends. What you want is to be able to look back over your life and see successful STRs. 
And the problem is if people don't think it's, there's LTR potential or they went out of a relationship, they feel like they have to have a causes belli. They feel like they have to go to war. They have to burn it down instead of loving someone out of the relationship, instead of acknowledging that it was a success. This is, these are the things that blow my mind. Like, just like monogamy is the only standard for success for a relationship, the funeral home is also the only standard of success. If you're together until somebody's <laughs> dead, congratulations, you had a successful LTR. If two people get out of it alive, it was a failure. Imagine if we applied that standard to- Anything else. Anything right. else. Right. Oh my God, you went for a drive in the country and one of you is dead, congratulations. Like we, sh we should be showing up at funeral homes when somebody's spouse dies with balloons and flowers. Like you won, you right. did it. This isn't sad. You won the game. This is a this is the whole point. Of right. It. I was going to ask you a question earlier, and I want to make sure that we get it. You have your new book out, and it was released, uh, I believe, in September. Mm. And I was reading an interview from that you did with Slate, and one of the things that really kind of piqued my interest right away, and the writer brilliantly decided to make it part of the lead, which I really appreciated, was. It was almost a holding up the mirror to you and your legacy and the 30 years of being this columnist and being this worldly wise person about these really intimate conversations. And the example that they presented you was with this young woman who had a crush on, I think a classmate or something. And long story <laughs> short, you suggested yeah. that you all get wasted together and try to make out. And if she liked it, then you keep going in. And if she didn't like it, you just say, oh, the alcohol made us do it. And you go, oh my God, this book should be removed from the shelves. This Indeed. is terrible advice. And I love that moment. I love that because there, there are columns that I read from my past and I go, somebody should have stopped me. <laughs> <laughs> but so my question to you is, you know, because you are able to look back um, through this arc of 30 years, what did you get wrong according to yourself? Oh my God, so much. Um, there were some things that, I was being tongue in cheek and then people took it literally or pretended to take it literally. You know, a woman who said that, you know, her husband was intolerable and abusive, but she didn't want to get a divorce either, asked what to do. And I said she should encourage him to take up drinking and driving. Maybe that would be the way out. And of course I didn't mean that. And like drinking and driving makes other people unsafe. And what if she was in the car too? And I was just sort of pointing out that, you know, you either have to live with the abusive partner and stay or get a divorce. Like there's no other way out. There were some things like that, you know, I wrote that. I was 26 years old. That was from the first two years of Savage Love. 26 years old, callow, gay, when I started writing my column. And I was just being like gonzo and baloney. And mm -hmm. at that point, I hadn't quite yet realized that people were taking the column more seriously than I was. Because the column for me, when I first started writing, it was a joke. I was gonna, the whole idea was I was gonna write sex advice for straight people as a gay man and treat straight people with the same contempt that heterosexual advice columnists would always treat gay people with. Mm. So yeah, when um, the writer read that back to me, I was just like, oh my God, I'm so appalled. <laughs> and I've had other moments like that. You know, if you write for 30 years and you didn't grow or learn anything, you weren't really writing. You weren't really paying attention. There were lots of male bisexuality. I was really wrong about that. Like how? Well, I kind of didn't believe in it. And my sample was skewed. And then there are some things that I say that I still believe that some people say are biphobic. You know, you meet somebody who's married, a man who's married to a woman, you're going to assume he's straight because that assumption is going to be correct 
most of the time, and we're an assumption-making species, and that's a particular burden on bisexual people in opposite-sex relationships who want to be perceived as bi, they have to say something, right? Right. Because that default setting of the heterosexual assumption that, you know, as gay people, we had to, like, shrug off, and still, like, I still get assumed to be straight all the time. I have to come out all the time. Who the hell thinks you're straight? It's been 30 years. Well, you know, you meet you meet somebody in a, a bar. He starts talking to you. He sees your wedding ring. He asks about the wife, and you're in Montana, and you're like, okay, here we go. <laughs> but, you know, I was wrong about asexuality. When at first, like, the AVN, the Asexuality Visibility Education Network, was founded, and this, like, concept was introduced, I was just like, come on. No. No one's asexual. This is BS. But... I also was interviewing people from the AVEN. I was talking to sex researchers. That's not what I believe anymore. And my readers kind of went along on that journey with me. And the weird thing about being a writer now is if you wanted to read a 15-year-old Mike Royko column in the 80s, you had to go to an archive. You had to go to a library. You had to search through microfilm to see what he thought 15 years ago about something. Now, with the internet, something I wrote 28 years ago pops up next to ads for a movie that's playing this weekend. It looks like I wrote it this morning. Mm -hmm. And then people pass that around as if that's what I still believe, as if I haven't been writing and thinking and revising. And it's a really weird sort of new reality for people who write and, and think in public about stuff, is that you get dinged. When you think about your, your life's work, your legacy, whether it's dealing specifically with the LGBTQ community or just society as a whole, what do you want to be remembered most for? Because you've, you, you've, you've done a, a tremendous amount of good and not just in terms of getting people to talk more openly about these conversations we've been really puritanical about, but you know, you and Terry started the It Gets Better project, for instance, mm -hmm. and all the good that came from that, the conversations that were sparked, the, the, support that young people who may have felt isolated finally saw a life raft and were able to get on and you were the the architect behind that that's something to be tremendously proud of is that your crowning moment when you think back or is there something else that i'm overlooking well the column started as a joke and i was just messing around right i've had people come up to me in airports and burst into tears because something i wrote that wasn't even a response to their question save their marriage or help them reconnect with their parents. You know, one of my standard bits of advice for queer people, or really all sorts of different kinds of people who are being, you know, people in interracial relationships whose families are unaccepting, and you know, gay people who come out whose families won't let their boyfriends come home for the holidays, is that your leverage over your parents is your presence, and if they can't love and accept you, don't see them. And that often brings parents around. I've had people come up to me crying because their parents finally came around. People come up to me, and tell me that the It Gets Better project saved their life or the life of their kid. And that is, of course, the most gratifying thing. It's a little self-aggrandizing to talk about it, right? To say that. The thing I'm second most proud of and I'm actually more comfortable talking about, my neologisms, GGG, price of admission, all of these things that are really going to outlive me. So, you know, that maybe I'm going to have a couple of entries one day in the OED that cite my goofy sex column as a writer and someone who's a big fan of the English language. That is the thing that makes me go, huh, okay, okay, it was, it was worth it. Mr. Savage Love, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your humor, and just your you-ness. 
<laughs> you know, it's like because there's no one else like you. And I, you know, have been a fan for much of the 30 years you've been in the public eye. You know, you just never, ever, ever not be interesting to me. Well, th- thank you. Thank you very much. And I've been a fan of yours for a long time, too. Mutual Appreciation Society moment. Um, I've been reading and following you for a long time, as you know. And uh, I'm really enjoying this podcast and the conversations you're having. So thank you for including me. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. I used to think that all two people ever needed was love. And if they were really meant to be together, then they would just instinctively know what the other person needed to be happy. Of course, I now know it's not anyone's job to be a mind reader or a circus clown constantly trying to find ways to make their partners happy. Also know that a healthy relationship doesn't always involve just two people. Bob the Drag Queen is funny, powerful, and one of the most self-aware human beings I have ever met. The co-host of the Emmy-nominated HBO show We're Here is as genuine as they come. So when he sheds tears on the show, it isn't performative. It truly comes from the heart. Speaking of the heart, I so appreciate Bob opening up his to all of us as he shares how a diva who once didn't want to be in one relationship works to maintain two at the same time. I had a lot of questions. Bob had a whole lot of answers. So let's get to it. Bob the Drag Queen, first of all, congratulations on just another amazing season of We're Here. You know, because we've spoken in the past, I absolutely love the show, uh, and particularly the Selma episode was very moving, and I thought you were very powerful in it. Um, How does it feel to be two down and, you know, hopefully 100 more seasons to go? 100? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when we did the pilot, I got to be honest, this, I told you this, I did not see it for this show. Because when you do the pilot, you don't actually see the full vision. Like, people are describing it to you and explaining it to you, but until you actually see the show come together, after seeing the pilot, I knew the show had longevity. I knew that it was special, and I knew that it would be well-received because it's done with it's done with compassion, it's done with heart. Um, the people working on it love it. So I knew that the show was actually going to be a hit. Like, the moment I saw the, the pilot before it aired, they showed us and I was like, this is this is absolutely great. So I, I wish I could say that I'm shocked, but I'm not shocked. You know, at the end of the first season, I was like, of course we'll get a second season. And then the second season was even better than the first season. So I was like, I know we're gonna get another one, you know? How do you keep yourself together? Because with each episode is a new person that you are giving energy to and they're giving energy back and you take that with you. Heading into season three now, how are you keeping yourself together? Well, I mean, I never said I never said I was keeping myself together. <laughs> That's an assumption <laughs> you, you assume that I'm, that I'm keeping myself together. What a bold assumption you made. <laughs> well, I think it's a point. Like, sometimes you do fall apart. I mean, I think I showed. <laughs> 
I think I showed in the Selma episode that sometimes I'm not together. Sometimes I fall apart. And I think that's part of the process is like letting your letting the cookie crumble the way it will and just knowing that it can always be put back together. I think that letting go in that episode was probably one of the best things that happened. It was very cathartic to, you know, not be together in that moment and then be able to rebuild myself over time. And I'm just, you know, experiencing life in the way that I guess everyone else would, you know, a lot of people say to me, you know, I was, I, mean, I was crying for a whole hour and I was like, girl, I was crying for 10 days. Like it was a 10 day, like you watched it for an hour. I was there for 10 days. <laughs> like, like, like I was there for 10 days. That's that scene alone was three hours. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like that scene of me crying and that thing, that scene was three hours long. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel bad. It just feels like like a cry that I need. You know what I mean? It, it, like I don't I don't feel um, I don't feel drained from the experience. I feel invigorated. If anything, where do you go to recharge? Where do you go to center yourself so you can go back out and give again? So I'm a homebody. I like being home more than I like being anywhere in the world. I'm not a sightseer. I just like being in my home. Maybe that's because I have since being on RuPaul's Drag Race. I'm so rarely in my home. So I've just started to really find comfort in that. So I go home and, you know, I, I, I talk to my family and my friends, my partners, who are my friends, you know. Partners. I, I heard plural. I have two partners. Um, I have two boyfriends and they're really wonderful. And sometimes I forget that everyone's not like hip to polyamory. It's really not as crazy as you all think it is. I think everyone thinks it's like some crazy um, outlandish romp. Um, but it's really just, I just have two completely separate relationships at the same time. So they are not partners. It's not like, um, we're not a throuple. I have one boyfriend, then I have another one, and we have two separate relationships. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. How long have you had two relationships? Um, I think uh, a little over two years now, over two and a half years, um, I've had two partners, um, but I also don't have a long dating history. I only have I only have ever had two partners, and they're the same two that I have right now. So you know, I don't have any exes. I didn't start dating until very late. Well, late from for me, what I consider late. Uh, I was in my thirties when I started dating. I didn't. I don't have any relationships in my twenties. You didn't have any relationships in your twenties, but were you sexually active in your twenties? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. A gay guy living in New York City, of course, but. But I, but I, but I was not um, seriously investing time in any people, not not romantically anyway. So, what was it about these two men that you found a place where you wanted to stay for a while? So, I wasn't like actively avoiding relationships. I wasn't in my twenties like trying to not uh, date anyone. But I was just really. I've always been, and I still am, very, very, very career focused. And I think that just when I met Jacob, it was the first time that me and someone were both mutually attracted to each other at a time where we were both, where I was looking for that in my life. So it just ended up working out that way. But I wasn't, it wasn't like one of those things where I was like, I'm, I'm not looking to date. I'm, I'm looking, I, I'm trying to focus on my career. Really, It really was not that. I was just doing my thing. And I think that I was just so self-absorbed with my career that I wasn't probably available for anyone in that regard. I probably wouldn't have been a good partner to anyone, if I'm being fully honest. And then... Ezra came along and, you know, it was just the perfect storm at the right time, you know. I'm really able to um, have a clean sever from um, sex and relationships and love. So that also has been a, like been a part of my, probably why I, I haven't always dated because I'm kind of like, oh, this is not about anything but what it is. 
and that works with like friendships and sex as well. Like I, I really am able to um, se- separate for me anyway um, the difference between like love and sex really easily. What are the differences for you? Well, I think that you know I think some people think that like you have to be in love with someone to have sex with them, or or like it has to be like some special thing, and it is special in that moment with that person, but it doesn't have to be lasting. It doesn't have to. I don't look at my body as some great. <laughs> Like gift or or um you know some they were really really like they really ham up how like what a great gift their body is and how it's like this big or you know essence and blah 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 and for me sometimes kind of just like i am enjoying myself in this moment this is like you know going to a concert with a friend or you know doing something like that and and i'm able to see the beauty in that without it meaning like I'm in love with this person. Sometimes it's just good to, we're both getting something mutually beneficial out of this interaction. We're both having fun, we both feel good, and then we can go our separate ways. But there came a point in which you weren't looking to go a separate way, that you were looking for something perhaps a little bit longer. What changed? Was it simply just you know evolution for you? Well, I think that I was looking at um, my my partner Jacob, we we just clicked in a way that I hadn't clicked with anyone else before, and it really wasn't about the the sexual part because I've had that connection with lots of people, but um, he just you know supported me and uplifted me and and believed in me you know in a in a way that felt unique in that moment, and it just worked out. I wish I could say I I, I am not a per- a great person to get dating advice or relationship advice from. I, I'm very I have a very small range of um of expertise to pull from very few experiences to pull from because of my short dating history i think also on top of that my you know style dating is very unconventional so it probably wouldn't work for most people anyway you were talking a little bit at the beginning about people thinking that you know having a polyamorous relationship is weird or crazy who are these people are these friends is this online? Are these family members? Uh, no, my family is really accepting. My family has accepted every curveball I've ever thrown them. They, they with grace, and, and I, I think my family is exemplary. I wish that all queer people had family members like mine. But like, I see a lot of people online. You know, I made a video a while back called "My Two Boyfriends," and it was a lot of like, "This couldn't be me. I could never. I'm too jealous. How could anyone possibly? This is good for you." But I'm and I'm also, and also I'm also like I'm just telling you about my experience. I'm not recruiting. I'm not I'm not handing out paperwork and pamphlets for you know the polyamorous agenda. I'm just talking about my own <laughs> my own experiences <laughs> um, with this. I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not like out here trying to recruit. Like I, I'm just telling you about my life. Which is part of like having my podcast and being on reality TV and and now um, you know uh, we're here a real life series. Um, I just share real parts of my life with people. So do the two know each other? You said Ezra, right, and Jacob. Ezra and Jacob, yeah, they know each other. We live about four minutes from each other. I I live in both places, and they're they're and they're friends. They um Ezra is a um musician and a model, and Jacob is a photographer and a, a podcast producer. He's that they've done photo shoots together. Ezra's also a hairdresser. Ezra's cut Jacob's hair. Um, they go to events together. They go shopping together sometimes. So they, they're they're friends. They're, they are friends. How do you see them as two separate boyfriends as opposed to a throuple? Obviously, you know it doesn't seem like they're having sex, but it seems as if everything else is the friendship and you know the sort of things you would do with a partner. 
Yeah, they just, I mean, they just, they, they, they're just friends. They have a, they have a relationship with each other, like a friend relationship. But I mean, I guess it's, it's kind of like being friends with your friend's partner. You know what I mean? Like I've had moments where like I met my friend and then I met, I had a friend for a long time that I met their partner and I'm like, oh my God, I love this person. Kind of like, actually kind of like Jacob. Jacob's a great example of that because I have friends who um, I knew for a long time. And then when they met Jacob, they were like, oh, this guy's great too. So they just became, they just ended up forming a friendship with him over time that is independent of me. Now they they hang out without me. They they play video games. They go, they, they do stuff. They go to plays without me um, because they have been able to form their own friendship. And I, I don't think this is any different. I don't think it's crazy, but I can see how people would view that as crazy because the emotion of jealousy is such a powerful emotion. How do you manage that emotion while balancing these relationships? I, I get jealous uh, all the time. And, and I think you're like, how do you guys not get jealous? Like, no one ever said no one, no one ever said we don't get jealous. I mean, I get jealous of my friends when they get jobs I want, but I can still be friends with them. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm jealous right now that that my best friend Monet Exchange has been consistently losing weight for the past couple of months and I've been gaining weight. <laughs> I'm very jealous because I've just been gaining weight. She's been losing it, but we're still great friends. You know what I mean? I don't think that I guess maybe for, it's for me that je because jealousy doesn't consume me, you know? If someone's listening right now and they're intrigued and they're like, well, maybe this will work for me. What would be some of the, you know, the interpersonal housekeeping things you would suggest they check for first before they venture out and try to have multiple relationships at the same time? Well, I would say, are you capable of being honest with yourself and with your partner? And I mean, like rigorously honest, are you capable of like holding yourself to a standard of truth that might be uncomfortable? I don't think in any relationship you should be lying to each other, but I can just say for specifically in a polyamorous relationship, you really, really want to hold yourself to a standard of truth that some people might have a hard time living up to like quick and direct honesty as well really helps me out a lot in terms of communicating with my partners of those lessons that you just shared which one was the hardest for you maybe just in general like a, being emotionally available to another person um, because for a long time, there was no one that I needed to be that emotionally available to because I didn't have a partner. I didn't let him live with anyone. I was living alone for such a long time. So I don't even think that's like a polyamorous thing. That's just like a, a shifting from being single to dating kind of thing. That was really tough. I was like, and, and even like maybe like during, during the quarantine, I remember thinking to myself, like me and Jacob were hanging out. I was like, oh my God, I've seen this guy every day. This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> How have I seen this guy literally every single day, every waking hour for all this time? But I think because we communicate so well, we were able to, because we were, you know, quickly sharing our feelings as we were having them, we were able to make it through that. <laughs> Why Jacob and not Ezra? Well, Ezra and I didn't live together during the pandemic. Jacob and I lived together during the pandemic. So I, I moved to L.A., um, I mean, we, we, we did live together during the pandemic. We we're still in the pandemic, but like at the height of the quarantine, when everyone was still wiping off all their groceries with, um, Clorox back when we were wearing gloves back when New York city was the, um, epicenter of COVID. Um, that was when, um, Jacob and I were living together. And I don't know if you know, this was back when every, every single thing was shut down. 
it was just it was just a very different experience than it is uh than than you know 2021 was a lot more open but how did Ezra not be jealous that you spent this entire time with Jacob. Jealousy does happen, but it's just if if it's not if it doesn't consume you, if you don't have a personality where jealousy consumes you and um, can like destroy. You. I I've had like for example, I had a friend years ago. We were we were like best friends, and we used to do a drag show in the city. And then one day she was like, um, "I'm jealous of you," but she was like, "I'm so jealous that I cannot be friends with you." The jealousy just consumed this queen's entire essence. She couldn't literally couldn't look at me, couldn't talk to me, couldn't be friends with me because she was just so jealous of me. And all I was doing was just living my life and trying my best to succeed. And I guess that my success felt like it wasn't happening for me. It felt like it was happening to her. Hmm. Um, and it ruined our friendship. Now, again, I'm going to go back to me and Monet. Again, I'm jealous of Monet's current physical status. She's very, she's doing such a good job. She's hitting the jam. I also want to take note that she's doing a lot more work than I am. I'm, I'm sitting here eating Cheerios before interviews. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but my jealousy, does not con my jealousy doesn't, cons it doesn't consume me. If anything, maybe it motivates me to want to, you know, get back in the gym and work out and eat healthy myself. That is so freaking amazing. I'm, I'm sitting here and I just got one. And not that jealousy consumes me, but like if he's out having like a great time for like a week and like I don't get to share that with him, I get a little jealous. And I just couldn't imagine him being with someone for like the entire quarantine time and not even being able to see them. That to me is the part that is hard for me to wrap my head around, but that's just because that's the, the dynamic in the relationship that I'm comfortable with. Yeah, I mean, I reckon that makes sense to me. It, it was it was tough for me and Ezra and I be together for that whole time, but we talked on the phone every day. Um, and then you know when the time came, I, I me and Jacob moved out here to LA, so now we live four minutes from each other. Um, and I literally have two places, and I go back and forth between the two every day. So I see both of my partners every single day. That is beautiful. Oh, that, thank you. That tr truly, truly is. Going back to your professional side, now that we've got all up in your business business, mm -hmm. when can we, or have you already started shooting season three? And what other projects are you currently working on until we can see you in season three? We have not started shooting season three yet, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, right now, I'm just working on my, um, obviously I'm always working on my podcast, Sibling Rivalry, we do two episodes a week. So I'm always doing that in my YouTube page. And of course I'm, I'm traveling around telling my jokes. Now I've, I've been doing stand up for uh, 13 years now. I think a lot of people don't know that about me. Some people think that I am one of those folks like reality TV people who decided to start trying, taking a stab at comedy, you know, after <laughs> gaining some followers, but I've actually been doing stand up comedy since 2009, or maybe 2008 even probably. It's been really exciting to get back on the road. I had some really good shows recently. I in Salt Lake City, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I'm going to Oxnard, San Jose. So, I mean, you can always look out for me on the road. And then later this year, me and Monet Exchange will be going on tour with our podcast. Oh, that is so awesome. I do need to see season three, though, because I'm so addicted to this show and the looks that you guys give, which... If you can pick your favorite child, which of the looks was the one that you found most satisfactory? I think I told you which one was mine. I'm just curious which one is yours. Yeah. When it comes to the drag kids, because um, I had some drag sons this year, too. When it comes to the drag kids, uh, I really enjoyed uh, Faith from uh, Spartanburg. But when it comes to my looks, 
the hair look was, was my, my niece Nevea played my wig in this ep in this video in this episode, and it was um, a dream of mine for a long time to um, have a wig jump off of my head and start dancing with me. I've always, I mean, for years I've been thinking about this, and then I finally found the venue and the time, the place to make it happen. And um, luckily, you know, my family's from Atlanta, so it was a, a short drive over to Alabama. Um, to have my niece, who is also incredibly athletic. She's like, she can do like backflips. She's a gymnast and a cheerleader and a dancer. She's like a Disney kid in the making. I was so excited to have her um, be part of that. And she was the perfect age at the time. Like, who knows? I mean, you know kids grow so fast. In two years, she'll probably be my height. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember your wig moving in an odd way. And I was like going, man, they got the fans in a really strange position. And then it popped off and I was like, oh, Lord have mercy. I got to, what the hell? <laughs> I was very proud of that. It was so amazing. Thank you. I was very proud of that. It was so amazing. The bar is very high for you, my friend, for what you're going to give us in season three. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm working on it. For sure. Bob, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. And for being such a tremendous role model and and your spirit. You know, I don't need to tell you, you know, just how tense it feels in this country, you know, especially along the lines of, you know, race and racism. And I've just really appreciated you never shying away from intersectionality when you speak and not shying away from intersectionality in the show we're here. And I just really appreciate that as a black gay man myself. And I just want to, you know, just tell you that I see you and appreciate you. And I know so many others do as well. Well, that means a lot to me. So thank you. Thank you very much. And it's always lovely talking to you, by the way. Likewise. On the next episode of Life Out Loud, we're talking family of choice with comedian and actress Margaret Cho. A lot of times queer families emerge out of hooking up and then realizing this is you're actually sisters. <laughs> <laughs> So, so are you suggesting that Grindr is really just Friendster for like the new generation? It is. It's like Ancestry.com, actually. <laughs> and then I'm going to introduce you to part of my family of choice. Yep, it's time for us to have a kiki. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And remember to hit subscribe if you haven't already. And please, please, please tell your friends, your family, your loved ones, your side pieces, your main pieces, anyone who you think could benefit from listening to these incredible stories from these remarkable people. And also, just take a moment to leave us a rating and review. That goes a long way to helping us get the word out. And more importantly, keep going. Life Out Loud with LG Granderson, a production of ABC Audio, produced by my friend Trevor Hastings. Senior producer is Brenda Salinas Baker. Our amazing production team includes David Toledo, Vika Arison, and Carrie Ann Thomas. The executive producer of Life Out Loud is Liz Alessi. A big shout out to Lakia Brown, Joe Moore, Robert Zapata, Tony Morrison, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ariel Chester, and Stacia Tashisku. I'm Elsie Granderson. This is that, that good, good. good.